Uh, this evening I want to uh, look at a, another parable with you. Um, you can blame Janelle and Jordan Bourne for this series on parables. They were responsible for currying a book from the college uh, which I uh, was given to review and uh, it certainly stimulated my thinking again uh, as it looked at the parables of uh, the Gospels. And um, <clears throat> the one we're looking at tonight is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and you'll find it on page 1041 if you're using the ESV Bibles that are provided in the church pews. Not pews, are they? They're seats. Seats, yeah, we'll call them seats. Luke chapter 16 and reading from verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, uh, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Uh, this is God's word. It's inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant, and it can be completely trusted. Uh, let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Uh, when I was um, young and in, uh, I was brought up, I lived in England and uh, there I, I uh, was exposed to the game of, of uh, football and football and soccer were synonyms in those days but since coming to Australia I've learned that there is a difference between football and soccer and football is what is played here in Australia 
AFL and uh, soccer is the world game. And if you're at all interested in the world game, uh, there is a world championship now taking place uh, in the Middle East in a place called Qatar. And uh, the Socceroos seem to be doing quite well. Yesterday they beat Tunisia and uh, still keeping their hopes alive in the, in the group rounds before they come to the knockout uh, play, uh, parts. If you watch soccer at all, uh, for me, the most exciting part uh, are the penalty kicks, uh, especially in a knockout because the whole game is decided uh, on a penalty shootout and they, each side takes turns and um, eventually there's a, a winner declared if the game goes to full time as a draw. And uh, if you watch uh, a, a professional soccer player, when he takes the penalty kick, he makes careful preparation. He will place the ball on a tuft of grass, not with his feet, but with his hands, uh, so that it's set up properly. Uh, then he takes about five or six steps backwards and slightly to the left if he's right-footed. Uh, he lets the goalkeeper see him look at both of the goalposts. Then he doesn't look at the keeper again. Uh, the reason for that is some keepers, goalkeepers, try to get inside your head. Um, the reserve keeper for the Socceroos is a, a guy by the name of Andrew Redmayne, and uh, he dresses uh, in, in a grey kit. And when the opposing side are going to take a penalty kick, he, he dances. He, he, um, his antics are quite uh, remarkable. He's uh, been named the Grey Wiggle uh, because of what he does. He tries to distract uh, the person taking the penalty. You've got to ignore some things because they're a distraction. So you ignore the keeper, you ignore the spectators, the fans and the other players and you wait for the moment when the referee blows the whistle and then you've already picked which corner you're going to and you're going to kick slightly to the inside of the corner post and then you kick and hopefully uh, it's a time to celebrate. Now some people will argue that penalty uh, kicks are a lottery but really there's nothing uh, random about scoring a perfect penalty. Uh, there's the mental preparation, uh, there's all the pre preparations that take place and there's the actual uh, technique of uh, kicking the ball properly. And it's a moment of suspense. It's mentally challenging, but if you want to maximise your chance of, of scoring, uh, you need to go through all of these steps. Now, I begin this way in a long-winded way, I suppose, uh, by saying that uh, before we come to this parable, um, I think there are some steps we need to take before at least I try to kick a goal with it and uh, apply the teachings. And uh, my sermon tonight is in two parts. Uh, first of all, I'm going to go through a, a series of uh, questions that I think you've got to ask yourself before you come to consider the teaching that Jesus gives in this parable. And then I want to uh, try to kick a penalty tonight uh, by looking at the application. So two parts. Um, so some questions, first of all. Um, this is my preparation. Um, <clears throat> I've got six questions. Um, some of them you might think are technical, some you might think are unnaturally brief, but if I have been brief or if I've been verbose, come and see me afterwards and uh, we'll try and sort out uh, what I've not been clear on. 
First question, is this really a parable? Uh, I say that because uh, there are quite a number of people who say no. And the reason for that is that uh, what we have in this parable are real characters with real names and we learn what, exactly what happens to them, which really is unique uh, in terms of uh, the parables that Jesus tells. Uh, but even so, I, I think Luke, the one who compiled uh, this gospel, intends us to think of it as a parable. He puts it... Uh, in a particular place in his gospel where there are other parables around it. And he begins this parable with exactly the same words as he begins the parable at the beginning of the chapter. So uh, I think it is uh, a parable. Second question. Uh, what is the main point? I think whenever you come to a passage, uh, you've always got to ask yourself this question. I don't think you're ever ready to um, speak about a passage or lead a Bible study about a, a particular passage until you've uh, settled in your own mind what is the main point that has been taught, taught and to, uh, to hone in on that point. Now, uh, I ask this question because there are people who say there uh, are two points, two main points. Um, and there is others who say, well, it's this one is the main point, uh, the, the moral one, that it's uh, the chief lesson is the denunciation of the wealthy man for his indifference towards Lazarus. Um, uh, I don't think that can be the main point. Um, it's true, he was indifferent, uh, but it is a subsidiary point, so it's not the main point. Uh, the main point, I think, of this parable is not the moral uh, lesson, but the theological one, and that's nearly always true uh, with Scripture. Uh, the main point is contained in, and is characteristic of the parables, in the last verse of the parable, in, in verse 31, where Abraham says to the rich man, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises uh, from the dead. That, I think, uh, is the key Point that we've got to think about and apply uh, to ourselves tonight. Uh, scripture has got uh, an abundance of instructions and warnings that God has graciously given to us um, about uh, the choices and decisions we make in this life. And we are to take note of these uh, instructions and warnings. Um, and they are sufficient uh, if heeded uh, to lead us to repentance and faith and subsequent felicity uh, as Lazarus experienced after death. Question three. Um, we tend to identify with characters uh, in parables. With whom should we identify uh, in this particular parable? Uh, I think we'd like to identify with the hero of the story, uh, as usual, uh, Lazarus. Uh, is the hero uh, who suffered in life and was vindicated at death. And we um, approve of the uh, justice that is carried out on the self-indulgent rich man who ignored uh, the poor, the poor man at his gate. However, I don't think we can identify with Lazarus uh, or any of the other characters in the parables, uh, in this parable, 
because all of these characters, uh, Lazarus, the rich man, the angels, Abraham, all of these characters belong to a, another world, not our world. This is a world beyond the senses, beyond sensory perception. Uh, and they, uh, there is mu as much of a chasm between us and them as there was between Lazarus <coughs> and the rich man. Uh, the only people in this parable who are still on earth are the five brothers of the rich man. And they, I think, are the ones that we are to identify with. Uh, to understand the parable, I think we've got to put ourselves into their shoes. We share the same perspectives as they do. They're in life, they're not yet uh, dead. Uh, they share the same perspectives as we do about the scriptures which we're looking at tonight. The afterlife is before us. So how do we prepare for it? Well, I think we've got to think through in the application um, by thinking of how the five brothers could prepare for the afterlife. And, and just as important, uh, and a subsidiary point really from the question, uh, is because the five brothers are still on earth, they're still living, uh, we're not in the final state of the last things. That is, uh, you know, the last trumpet's not yet sounded, 1 Corinthians 15. The dead in Christ have not yet been raised. Uh, we're not yet into uh, the new heavens and the earth. Uh, we're not yet reached Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Uh, the final blessedness um, of, uh, of, of the last things. Uh, we're still on, uh, we're thinking tonight of what, it's not the final state, it's referred to as the intermediate state. Uh, that is the state um, that we enter into immediately after death, but before the resurrection itself. Uh, and this is, uh, as I say, called the intermediate state. It's a conscious state, as we uh, find from the parable. Um, the soul does not sleep uh, after death. Uh, the soul is not extinguished after death. Uh, but there is this, this period of time where the dead who've gone before us await the final general resurrection when Christ returns, when that last trumpet does sound. Question number four. Um, this is a grey wiggle question. Um, it's a distraction, but I think it sometimes um, occurs in our mind. Um, and we should really um, put it aside. Uh, is this Lazarus mentioned uh, in the parable? Is this the same Lazarus that I've read about elsewhere in the Gospels? Is this the same Lazarus that I've read about for, in, in John chapter 11? And the answer is no. Uh, I think for four reasons. Um, at least four that I could dredge up. Uh, number one, Lazarus itself was a common enough name anyway in the first century. Uh, number two, uh, this is a parable. Uh, there's no compelling reason to suppose that this Lazarus was a real person. Uh, number three, when Jesus taught this parable, Lazarus was alive anyway um, in, in Bethany. And the Lazarus in John chapter 11 was not a homeless beggar. He wasn't poor, as far as we know. Uh, the Lazarus of John chapter 11 uh, lived in Bethany 
which is a village just outside Jerusalem. It's only a couple of kilometers from uh, the city of, or city of Jerusalem. Uh, Henry lived there in a house together with his two sisters, uh, Martha and Mary. So, um, the grey wiggle, uh, don't be distracted, no connection. Um, this is uh, another Lazarus. Um, question five, uh, and this is where, if you want to switch off for a while, <laughs> I have to be a little bit technical, but um, I want us to think about Hades. Hades is mentioned in this parable, and I think, uh, to my mind, uh, we have quite a bit of confusion about uh, what or where is Hades, uh, because there are all there are a number of names uh, that are used to refer to life uh, after death or this conscious state of existence. I can think of five. Uh, Hades, Sheol, Gehenna, Hell, and one that you get only once in the New Testament, uh, a place called Tartarus uh, in 2 Peter 2 uh, verse 5. Um, so so what do these different names refer? Uh, where are they? How should we think of them? Uh, well, firstly, uh, the word Sheol. Uh, Sheol is a Hebrew word. It's found uh, in the Old Testament and it's also found in the New Testament when Old Testament is being quoted. Uh, Sheol uh, was translated in the King James Version in 1611 as hell. And <clears throat> because that word hell has changed its meaning in the last 400 years, um, it is not what it means, uh, not what we understand that it means anyway. Uh, Sheol uh, in the Old Testament is simply the place of the departed. It's the grave, it's a synonymous with the grave. And you get the righteous in the Old Testament like Jacob going down to Sheol. You get the wicked in the Old Testament uh, going down uh, into Sheol. Uh, and even though <clears throat> both go down into Sheol, it's simply a name for, for death itself. Um, there is, uh, uh, there's an emerging uh, pattern in the Old Testament uh, that there is a distinction of what happens after death um, between the righteous and the wicked. Uh, you see it coming out in, for example, Enoch, who walked with God and was not, for God took him. Or for Elijah, who was taken up to heaven in the chariot of fire. Uh, or Jesus himself, uh, when he's disputing with the Sadducees, and he, <clears throat> you know, the Sadducees didn't believe in uh, life after death, and he quoted to them from the Old Testament scriptures, where it says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And he said, God is God of the living, he's not God of the dead, you are wrong in this. Um, so there is this distinction that begins to emerge over the fate of the righteous and the wicked. Uh, so the word shale simply refers to the state of death and um, uh, that's all. Uh, the second, uh, and it's an Old Testament uh, word, the second, and I'm going to take these together, is the word Gehenna that you will have come across in some versions of the English Bible and the word hell. Um, you won't find Gehenna in your ESV Bibles. It's not there. Uh, it's always translated as hell. And um, the word Gehenna, uh, Gehinnom, is the valley of Hinnom. It's a, it's a valley that runs just south 
of the walls of old Jerusalem. Uh, I used to say to people after, I've been to Israel a few times, I used to say to them, I've run to hell and back. And by that, I'm, one morning I got up at six o'clock and I ran around the walls of Jerusalem. I had to run down the valley of Hinnom. Uh, and it meets the Kidron Valley at the bottom near the Pool of Siloam. And then I ran up uh, the Kidron and came back on the north side of, of the old uh, walls of Jerusalem back to the hotel, which was on the Damascus Road. Um, <clears throat> So uh, the Valley of Hinnom uh, was a place in the Old Testament where at a period of great rebellion against God and idolatry, the people of Israel used to sacrifice their children to the god Moloch. And it was in this valley. And it became used in the New Testament uh, for a place of punishment, a place of torment and anguish. And you will find it translated as hell. And it is a final state not an intermediate state uh, that the scripture speaks of. And then uh, the one that is mentioned in our parable, the, the, the third uh, word here is Hades, um, <clears throat> which in the New Testament is commonly used like Sheol in the Old Testament. It's Hades in the New Testament uh, in almost every case simply means the place of the departed, except in one instance. And sadly, it's in this particular parable. Uh, it's the one and only time uh, where uh, Jesus picks up this word and uses it to, uh, uh, to describe this place of torment of the wicked immediately after death. And, and the New Testament does uh, speak of a separation of after death of the righteous from the wicked, uh, the righteous go to be with Christ, which is far better, says Paul. Um, uh, or they go to Abraham's side here, as in the parable before uh, the cross. Or the thief, you know, um, the repentant thief on the cross, uh, when he repented, Jesus says to him, uh, today you will be with me in paradise. So um, Hades, normally the place of the departed, but here is used to describe a place of torment, so a distinction between the righteous and wicked. That's the technical one, you can switch back on. I should have a bell really, like in Korea, you know, if the preacher wants to wake people up, he has a little bell under the pulpit which he rings and you know then he's coming to a more important part. Uh, I should have one really. Uh, the last question, this is my last preparation before the kick. Um, the question is this, to what extent does this parable really teach about what happens after death? Because I can hear an objection, uh, I can hear somebody saying, well look, uh, this is just a parable. This is fiction. This is not real life. This is a story. And surely we don't get our teaching, our doctrine, our instruction from stories and parables. How can you build you know, a, a teaching on, on a parable? Or how can you draw out what happens after death from something that's a fictional story? And, and that is a, a valid point, of course. But in this case, the whole point of the parable turns upon the difference between Lazarus and the rich man. The parable would be quite pointless if there was not in fact a separation of the righteous from the wicked at death. 
and not and that there wouldn't be future comfort for the righteous and misery for the wicked. So those are my uh, steps. Uh, and so to conclude, uh, just looking at the parable, standing back and looking at its teaching, it's an important parable. It's a unique parable in many ways. <clears throat> it's the only occasion, you see, when the Lord draws aside the veil that separates this world from the next world. And we're given a glimpse of our immediate future. We're allowed to see <clears throat> what is uh, beyond death and to see that the, the relationships that exist not just in life but the relationships that exist uh, in death itself and to see how the choices that we make here uh, have great import on eternity and our future. Now there are all kinds of beliefs and philosophies about what happens uh, when we die and <clears throat> I, I just want to go through uh, a few of those because uh, every, every couple of months I get a, a newsletter from a missionary society. Uh, the missionary society is called MIRF, Middle East uh, Reform Fellowship. Uh, but on the outside of the newsletter, uh, in bold type, uh, clearly intended for my postman to read, uh, are the, uh, is the sentence or the question, where will you spend eternity? And that's the question that this parable uh, seeks to answer. And uh, I think, uh, I don't really know my postman, he, he's, he's uh, uh, a kind of, he only comes on good days, fine days, not wet days, but I hardly ever see him to talk to. I don't know where he stands. Um, but if he's an irreligious postman, uh, then he might give various answers. Uh, to that question, where will you spend eternity? Because there are all kinds of people now who tick that no religion box in the census that we have every few years. He might be an atheist, for all I know. He might say, well, I don't believe in eternity, I don't believe in God. He might be an agnostic. He might say, well, I don't know what happens after death, and I don't think anybody can know for certain what happens after death. Uh, he might be indifferent. I don't care what happens uh, after death. I've got enough problems uh, posting this mail anyway uh, to care about those kind of things. Uh, he might be a materialist. He might say, well, you know, we return to the elements from which we're formed. It's like what you say in the funeral service, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Or he might be vague. And he said, well, I've never really thought about what happens after death. Uh, or he might take, and I think this is a more popular view from my observations here in, in Australia, he might take the sentimental view. Uh, I like to think that my loved ones are looking down from above uh, on me as we uh, you know, celebrate their lives. It's interesting that no matter how irreligious a person is, how devoid of beliefs that they have, in the face of death, sentimentalism seems to prevail. There's no basis for it except uh, feelings. But there are many who take a sentimental view. The second group um, would be, you know, if my postman is religious, how would he answer that question? Where will I spend eternity? Well, if he fronts up to church, I suppose twice a year at Christmas and you know, Easter, um, he might say, well, 
Uh, good people spend eternity with God. You know, good people go to heaven. It's a kind of lifetime achievement award. Um, or uh, he might say, well, if he's a religious realist, he might say, well, nobody's perfect. Um, I'm not perfect, I know that, uh, and I know others are not perfect. Uh, but God is forgiving, that's what he does, that's what the Bible tells me he does. He will accept me. Uh, all people will go to heaven, so, uh, except, of course, the very bad people, uh, which when I was younger was people like Adolf Hitler, but I suppose today people like Vladimir Putin. Um, we wouldn't expect to see them uh, in heaven. Uh, if my postman is a Roman Catholic, he would probably say, well, um, I'll probably have to spend some time uh, in a place called purgatory. Um, <clears throat> I'll spend time there to make satisfaction for my past sins, to purify myself so that I can be good enough eventually to enter heaven. And he might take um, uh, some, we might buy some indulgences, which the Catholic Church still uh, pedals, uh, as they did at the time of the Reformation with Tetzel and so on, um, to knock time off for good behaviour or good deeds. Or he might be one of the followers of the karmic religions like uh, Buddhism or Hindu, uh, uh, Hinduism. And he might say, well, uh, I hope to you know, pile up some good karma so that when I come back again, I can come back as someone better. Certainly wouldn't want to pile up bad karma. I don't want to come back as a cockroach or whatever. Uh, if he was uh, a Muslim, uh, he might say, well, uh, I need to live a devout life. And if I pray five times a day, if I fast at Ramadan, uh, if I make the, the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, uh, if I keep the Hadith, I hope, uh, because there's no assurance of salvation in Islam, he, he would say, well, I hope, if Allah is merciful, uh, to enter paradise. The only assurance you can have is if you die as a martyr, uh, uh, that assurance of salvation. So we've thought about the irreligious, we've thought about the religious, uh, we're now going to think about the gospel answer, uh, which brings me to my two points of uh, application. Of course, this is a very brief parable, it, you can't construct a full-orbed doctrine of the last things from this, but I think we can glean some two important lessons, I think, and both these lessons are related to each other. Uh, the first lesson I think we can learn uh, from this parable, and we're thinking about what the five brothers would learn from this, is that there are differences in life, different circumstances in life. We see that in the circumstances of uh, the rich man uh, with Lazarus. But in death, circumstances are huge and different. They're fixed, they're permanent. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, well, what are those differences? And are those differences in death determined by how we treat other people? Are, they, are the differences determined by our socio-economic status in life? Uh, is the rich man in Hades because he was rich and indifferent to Lazarus? Uh, is Lazarus at Abraham's side because he's poor? Is Lazarus being compensated? for what he went through on earth. 
Well, what do we know from this parable? What, we, what do we know about the rich man while he was on earth? Well, he enjoyed his designer clothing and we're told he feasted sumptuously every day. So he's a, a person who cared for his comforts, his pleasures, uh, his bodily appetites and his honour. And we learn that he was indifferent to the poor. He's not cruel to the poor, uh, but indifferent, I think, would be the best way of, of summing up his attitude. He didn't drive Lazarus away from his gate. So he wasn't deliberately mean to him, but he wasn't exactly charitable either. Uh, he could have helped Lazarus. He had the power to help. He had the resources to help. He could have done Lazarus much good, but he didn't. And I think this indifference uh, to Lazarus was a symptom of a greater indifference, an indifference to God himself. Uh, we know that the rich man was religious. Uh, the fact that he's directed at the end to listen to Moses and the prophets indicates that. It's a shorthand way of saying that he's directed to listen to the scriptures, in his case, the Old Testament scriptures, which implies at least two things. It implies that he knew the scriptures. Uh, in fact, in, in Hades, the rich man addresses Abraham as Father Abraham. That's the correct covenant address towards uh, Abraham. So uh, he is one of God's ancient covenant people, at least descended from them according to the flesh, and he's claiming this covenant relationship, Father Abraham. And secondly, we know that he didn't take the scriptures warnings directed to his soul seriously. Rather, he chose to cultivate and satisfy bodily appetites at the expense of his own soul. So here is a man who lives by bread alone, but not by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's a materialist. Uh, and I'm sure as a rich man, he would have had a, uh, an ornate and a, a lavish funeral. And I've no doubt there'd be some wonderful eulogies praising him and how much we miss him. Or at least the freeloaders who feasted sumptuously at his table every day would probably certainly miss him. What do we learn of Lazarus whilst he was on earth? Well, we know at least four things about Lazarus. Uh, number one, his name. We know what his name means. And in scripture, the name that is given to people often has significance. Lazarus means God is my helper. Uh, I find that quite re remarkable, really, and I was thinking that through myself. Um, you know, as he lay at the gate of the rich man, sick, hungry, body covered with loathsome running sores, waiting for any scrap of food to come his way from the rich man's table. You know, he might have been tempted to think, how has God been my helper? I would, I must say. How has God been my helper? But that's what his name means. Secondly, uh, when he does die, he's carried to a heaven by the angels. And scripture in the New Testament tells us that the angels are sent forth to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation, Hebrews. Uh, which leads us to believe that Lazarus was amongst those who, though poor in this world, 
God chose to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Uh, thirdly, he was carried to Abraham's side. In the older versions you'll find he's carried to Abraham's bosom. And Abraham is designated by Paul and uh, as the father of all who believe. So we have good, a good basis for believing that Lazarus was a believer. And also by inference, although not stated, uh, Lazarus did what the rich man did not. Uh, he had listened to Moses and the prophets. And the word listen obviously includes believing as well. So what do we learn from this? Well, we learn first of all that there's no necessary connection between our lot in this life and our lot in the next life. Our lot in this life might be not so good. I think of a recent funeral that took place in this church. Uh, the man who uh, was buried here had, did not have a, a, a good life, we could say, not a full life as, as we know it. Uh, Lazarus in, in this life uh, was in misery, but in the next greatly comforted with the rich man opposite. And I think the second thing we learn uh, from this is that the rich man is not in Hades because he was rich. And Lazarus is not in heaven because he was poor. Lazarus is at Abraham's side because he believed the prophets and Moses and the prophets. And the point uh, that we learn is that eternity is decided by our attitude uh, towards the scriptures, the God of the scriptures. And the uniform teaching of the scriptures is that faith alone brings about the great and desired change that determines those fixed differences that are experienced in the life to come. It's not one's socio-economic status. The second lesson uh, of this uh, parable is this, that, uh, and I want to expand on that last point I made, that hearing the gospel with faith is the way of blessing, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Uh, and the supreme lesson is found in this command at the end of the parable, to the five brothers with whom we identify uh, and it's this that if they the five brothers do not listen to Moses and the prophets they will not be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead you see the rich man wanted to send Lazarus back and he thought that you know his five brothers would be so shocked by seeing a man who was dead come back to life to warn them he thought that they would repent you know, this is the stuff of uh, Charles Dickens, isn't it? You remember the, um, the Christmas Carol? And uh, the key character in the Christmas Carol, it's a fictional story, was Scrooge. Uh, Scrooge was the, the, the archetypal miser who treated his employees miserably. Uh, but he changed when he was visited by the ghosts of Christmas past, present uh, and future. But that's a story. Uh, and yet this parable is teaching that, generally speaking, a change will not be affected if someone is visited by someone who is dead. If a man who was known to be dead suddenly rose up and stood before the brothers to warn them, the rich man thought that they would be shaken out of their indifference. It would be a compelling sign to anyone even to the most seasoned sceptic. 
And I think we have to concede that, yes, perhaps in a few cases that might be so. It might bring about reform, amendment of life. But this parable teaches not generally so. Uh, and I think we need to consider this a little because there's a great longing today for acts of power such as an unbelieving world demands. Uh, it happened at the cross. You know, when Jesus was hanging helpless on the cross, those there say, come now down from the cross and we will believe in you. But would they? I think some teachers today and some churches build their ministry on the miraculous. Um, you know, a religious icon that weeps tears, a shroud that bears the image of Christ, anything, however weird it might sound. And the world uh, lays stress on what is sensational. People love the dramatic. The media is interested in nothing else because it sells. But the teaching here is if a person will not listen to the word of God, then they won't be convinced by a miracle, no matter how sensational. And the uh, objective example for this comes from the raising of Lazarus himself, the other Lazarus, the real Lazarus, in John chapter 11. Uh, here's a man who's been dead in the grave uh, for four days, and Jesus comes to the grave and Lazarus is raised from the dead. How did people respond? Well, if you read John 11, we haven't done tonight, but if you read it, you will read that a few people did believe in Jesus. They did confess him as Lord and Saviour. But, for the most part, those who witnessed this miracle began plotting together to put Jesus to death. Those people who'd seen the miracle, they recognised the reality of it. This was not smokes and mirrors from some magician. This was not, you know, uh, deception from an illusionist. They say in John 11, verse 47, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And then in verse 53, From that day on they took counsel together how to put him to death. And later on in John chapter 12, verse 10, the chief priests planned to put Lazarus also to death because on account of him, the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So let's not just get rid of uh, Jesus, let's get rid of the, the miracle uh, man himself. So this parable stresses uh, not the power of the sign, but the power of the word. Uh, an unbelieving heart will never be convinced by signs, miracles, wonders, no matter how sensational. Uh, besides which, um, Scripture tells us God has already given to us all the signs that we need to come to faith in Christ. I mean, the whole purpose statement of John's Gospel is John 20, verse 13, 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, these signs are written, and there are seven signs if you read through John's Gospel. These are written that you may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus, and believing in him, you might have eternal life. In other words, there's, the signs recorded are sufficient for a person to come to faith, to come into a right standing through faith in Christ, with God, and to enjoy subsequent felicity in life after death. 
you know, whenever sporting stars are interviewed about their strategy and prospects, uh, one of the replies they'll often make, well, I'll take it one game at a time, or one kick at a time, uh, or one goal at a time. And I don't know about you, but you may be drifting through life and thinking like the five brothers of the rich man undoubtedly were, well, I'll take it one world at a time. There's enough going on in my life now uh, to keep me occupied. I don't want to be bothered about thinking about these things that are not yet. I'll, I'll handle it when I come to die. Now, I haven't had that long, really, in pastoral experience. I've spent most of my life teaching. Uh, but in pastoral experience, uh, eight years, I've only ever come across one person who repented uh, on their deathbed. It's very rare to happen. Um, <clears throat> But the point of the parable is that you and I are not afforded that, you know, that luxury. Lazarus is not going to come back from the dead and, and warn us. The rich man isn't coming back either, even though he dearly wanted to, and that's the whole point of the parable. But the Gospel does tell us about one who has come back from the dead, from the grave, victorious. And we have these warnings for us from him in his words from Christ himself. He's the great light that we have about what happens uh, beyond the grave. We've been, every person has been given three lights. Uh, one is the light of creation itself, which tells you by looking at creation uh, that there is a creator, one who is divine and powerful. The second light is the universal human experience of guilt. Paul writes about that in, in Romans 2. Every person knows what it's like to feel guilty because we've not even lived up to our own standards, let alone God's. But the third great light is, of course, the death and resurrection of Christ, the empty tomb and the apostolic testimony to an empty tomb, that Christ is risen, death, sin, and the grave conquered. Those who come to him in repentance and faith might find life eternal. It's difficult if you're a parent to watch your children make mistakes and it can be made a lot worse if they won't listen to your advice. And if you have felt that anxiety, uh, even anguish for them, then you know something, even if it, even if it is a small something, of what anguish the wicked dead feel for the living, for their families back home. A desire to warn, but an inability to do so. So the message of the parable is this, you know, listen, listen to the scriptures. Listen to the message. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone should rise to the dead. Well, may the Lord help each one of us to heed this warning, to listen to the words that God has given to us, and to his name be the glory and praise.